Okay, we are halfway through our series in Romans 8, and so you'd be pretty good at finding it in your Bible by now. What I like to do is to start um, this section in Romans 8 by rewinding us back to where everything starts in Genesis. So much, uh, well, everything springs and has its foundation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The characters and what happens in those chapters form the rest of history. And so I want to see uh, this text through the lens of what happened then. And many of you know the drill here. God put the, put the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden and said, you can eat from any of these trees, but don't eat from that one tree. That tree in the center, the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that tree or you'll die. And then you remember the serpent came to the woman and, and uh, said, did, you know, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden? And, he's, and so she's confused and says, no, he, he didn't say that, but he did say that we can't eat from that one tree over there. And, uh, and said, if, if we did, we would die. And the serpent scoffs and says, no, you, really, you won't die. It's just that he doesn't want you to be like him. And so he's holding out on you just a bit. And so, you know, what happens? She takes the fruit, she bites it, hands it to her husband who is with her, he eats it, and then you hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's kind of like you find, you know exactly where the toddler is that spilled all of the milk. You know where he's hiding, and so you walk around and say what God said in the garden. Where are you? And he confronts the situation, and he speaks to each one. And, and uh, Adam, he blames his wife for giving him the fruit. And, and Eve, she blames the serpent for deceiving her. And so God starts with the serpent. And he says to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you. Now, take note of that word cursed, because it's going to happen throughout this sermon. Cursed are you. Because above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. To the woman, um, God gives great pains and childbearing, and a bit of role definition between her and her husband. And to Adam, God says this, Because you listened to the voice of your wife, and you ate of the tree, which I commanded you, you do not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. He says, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So to recap, the serpent is cursed itself because of what he did. The woman has increased pain, but no curse on her necessarily. And the man, because he ate of the fruit, the ground is cursed. And the ground is down there again saying, well, you know, what, what, wait a minute, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I'm just holding up this tree and all of a sudden I'm in trouble. Well, the ground is cursed because of what the man did. See, when God made the seas and all that swim in them, when he made the skies and all that fly in it, when he made the ground and all that walk and crawl along it, he said it was good, and now it's cursed because of sin. 
weeds grow where you want tomatoes and green beans and onions to grow and thorns and thistles come up where you want irises and lilies to bloom the ground is the stuff we're made of and to it we're going to return thorns thistles briars i mean it had to have been a result of sin that a berry patch has thorns on it now i mean i'm i'm I can't prove it, but absolutely just makes sense to me that berry bushes didn't have thorns before the fall. But everything is cursed now. Everything is messed up entirely. The ground, the air, all of creation feels the effects of the sin that that first man and woman committed. And throughout Scripture, the poets and the prophets gave voice to creation. They, they gave it qualities like people were, that talk and feel, that can see and hear. And let me just bear some of this out. Psalm 19 says, The heavens above declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Day by day pours out speech. Night by night it reveals knowledge. It says their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words, the stars, the sun, the moon, they speak about God. Psalm 77, verse 16, says, When the waters saw you, speaking about the Lord, when the waters saw the Lord, it was afraid. The very very deep trembled. It was like the ocean saw God and got scared. Interesting. Psalm 98, the rivers clap their hands. The hills sing for joy. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah said the land is in mourning. The land cries and weeps and is sad because it's cursed. It's parched for lack of water. At his triumphal entry, Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem on the donkey. And you remember all of the people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees are getting irritated because of the praises that the people are giving and the, what the children are singing in Jesus' presence. And they understand what is being said here. And the Pharisees say, quiet your disciples down. And you know what Jesus said. If these are quiet, the very rocks would cry out. Because Jesus knew that creation sings praise to God. A passage in Isaiah 55 It says, The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer, bread for the hungry. Makes sense. And God says, It's the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So what happens when the word of the Lord goes out and bears fruit and prospers? Well, the next verse says, you will live in joy and in peace, and the mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Maybe some of you sang a song that had these lyrics in it. But listen here, where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where the nettles grew, and those are nasty things. You get those on your hands, they just, oh, it's worse than poison ivy. When nettles grew, Myrtles will sprout. It's the reverse of the curse. And there's lots more where that came from, but we don't have all day. The point is, 
people sinned, death entered the world, separation from God eternally, relationally, but the rest of creation suffered the fate of the humans as well. What once was perfect and flawless and true now is described by words like corruption and decay and futility. And it's this corrupted, decaying, futile creation that we look at and go, wow, that's so beautiful. I mean, just pictures of the sun, a sunset over a, a Kansas prairie or a, a snow-topped mountain somewhere in Colorado or, or some, a, a grassy valley that you just want to go walk through and enjoy the birds and the butterflies and, and you see a hummingbird in your backyard even or a rosebush that you're working on. And we see beauty in the things of this earth because, well, frankly, they are, but that's as good as we ever see it. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a world that's been in futility and decay and brokenness for thousands of years. Imagine a world before all this took place, before the brokenness, before the sin. Can, you even, can we even grasp that world? That's where we're headed. That's the new creation we're waiting for. This scripture in Romans 8 is one that brings about a lot of hope for a lot of hurting people a lot of lonely people, a lot of people beat up by a world that's on fire with political division, sickness, economic crisis, wars of all kinds. That's a lot of suffering. But I consider, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I also want to insert an opposite here. Because not only, Paul says, the sufferings of this world aren't going to matter a whole lot compared to the glory that's to be revealed, I also think that it's true that the sufferings of this world are a walk in the park compared to the condemnation and separation and eternal damnation that waits for those outside of Christ. People say things like, well, hell is just the worst that the earth has to offer. Or hell is just the evil that's inside of all of us. Or, or hell is just what we make it. It's just the bad parts of this world. No, not even close. This, the worst that humans can do to each other here, pale in comparison to the utter terror and horror that wait for those outside of Christ on the other side of this life. But let's stick with the glory part, shall we? Let's, let's put in perspective the sufferings of this world in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed. And it's not like Paul had a cushy life. This is a guy who by his own words, and this is from 2 Corinthians 11 here, he says, he, he wrote, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. And here he goes, his resume of suffering. Here he goes. Five times, he says, I, was, I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That's with a whip. 39 times. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. And this is recorded for us in the book of Acts. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city and left him lying there. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day... In the open sea, 
Can you imagine out in the open sea, you're, you're latched onto a piece of driftwood and you're just floating for 24 hours? He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, he says, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This guy has suffered. He knows what suffering is like. And that's probably not the whole list. And this guy says that all that he's gone through is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. We wait with eager expectation for, the, for eternity with God, but how do we picture that glory? How do you picture that glory? Do you, do you imagine not only a, a new heaven, but also a new earth, a restored Eden? You're not the only one waiting for glory. We are not the only ones anticipating this eternity with God. Creation is too. It was subjected to decay and bondage to sin, not because it wanted to, and not because it was its, its fault, but it, according to the one who subjected it, God himself. That's what our text says. So here's the, here, the picture of heaven that I want us to have is one I prefer to call new creation. Not because heaven's wrong, anything's wrong with the word heaven, but it has so much in our culture just attached to it that just isn't accurate. New creation is a Bible phrase that is descriptive of the reality that awaits. Verse 21 in Romans 8 says the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children. It will join us in glorious freedom from death and decay. Creation longs to be liberated from its bondage to decay, just like we do. It wants freedom. So do we. Here's what people miss when they picture the afterlife as a bunch of clouds and harps and golden gates. Humans are meant to be co-rulers with God on earth. That was the vocation of the first humans. They were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Those were their instructions. And that's not to conquer it, as, is, as in for their own profit and exploitation. No, God told them to work it, create with it, and take care of it. And so, when we sing... Songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. When you sing songs like that, you're only half right. And I don't mean to poke at you, but here's the thing. This world was intended to be our home. It is our home. It's just a wreck right now. We have treasure laid up in heaven. Yes, Jesus describes what this treasure is and how it's obtained. But when heaven comes to earth and when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God and when the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes breaking through the clouds, every eye seeing him, he says, Behold, I make all things new. And he comes with his reward. This is 
this is everywhere in Scripture. I mean, it's all kinds of places, and I'm only going to give you four. Isaiah 40, verse 10, says, Behold, the Lord comes with His might. His arm establishes His rule. His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. Later on in Isaiah 62, 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. His reward is with Him, and His recompense goes before Him. Jesus himself in Matthew 16, 27 said this, The Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will repay each one according to what he has done. In Revelation 22, it echoes all of this and says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. What exactly are we yearning for and how do we think that it looks verse 22 says we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time look if if all we want is for the suffering of this world to be done we don't have eyes to see or a heart that that is the reward that is the glory to come paul says that these are like the groans of childbirth And if all we want is for our hurt to be over and just to get over the line somewhere for all this to be done, we're missing a huge part of the picture. I've been privileged and blessed to watch four kids come into this world. And I didn't experience it firsthand, but I was there and I heard the effects. There was a lot of pain involved in that birthing process. For the one doing the birthing, yes. But I think also for the one being birthed. I mean, I'm not a doctor and I can't prove this, but I wonder, maybe I'm wrong. Rightfully, we think of the mother experiencing the pains of childbirth because she does. But what about the poor kid? I mean, that immense pressure that she's never felt before and being expelled from the only home she's known for months, only to be unceremoniously yanked out and spanked and coughing and sputtering for air. Air, what's air? I'm breathing air now instead of fluid. What's that? Oh, it's cold out here. It's so bright. Oh, my eyes. No, put me back. Put me back. This is terrible. I don't want to be here. It's painful. It's shocking. It hurts. But this is what we've been waiting for. This is the joy that comes after the pain. We've been waiting to bring this little one into the family. We gave her a name. We have a relationship. And the mother, mom wasn't suffering all the symptoms of late-term pregnancy, just thinking, man, if I could just get this baby out, I'd stop hurting my back. I mean, yeah, that's true, but that's not the only thing she's thinking about. If I could just have this baby birth, I wouldn't be carrying all this extra weight around and it wouldn't hurt so much. I mean, she might be ready for that extra weight to be to be done and she might be ready for her back not to hurt so much, but it's not just for her own sake of being comfortable. She wants to see and hold and nurse and care for a child. The baby is going to be born. She has a calling to fulfill. She has a job to do. She has a role to play. She has a child to love. We can't lose sight of what's coming after the pain. 
This is verse 24. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We eagerly await our adoption as sons and daughters and the redemption of our bodies. We don't want this world's suffering to quit just so we can have it over with. Just so we can float around on some cloud and have harp practice forever. I mean, we have a role to fill. We have a job to do. If you've ever thought of heaven being a boring place, you've missed new creation. We're not just waiting for our adoption as sons and daughters. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Once again, the Bible speaks of bodily, physical resurrection. So we can go to a very physical place, the new heaven and new earth. It's a, it's a glorified, restored Eden. And we have the vocation and the job that Adam and Eve were supposed to have done to take care of and be co-rulers with the Lord on the earth. We have work to do. We have a role to play. We have to care for, care for creation made new. This, he says, is what we hope for. This is what we hope for. This, in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Elsewhere, Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. Faith is great, but when we're glorified and we're in the new creation, we don't need faith because faith is sight. We, we see what we, what we by faith took as and believed. And in new creation, we don't need to hope for this anymore. It's been realized. The only thing that matters is love. That's the only thing that's forever. And we don't have this hope fulfilled yet. This is why we need to be reminded of these things. That the present sufferings just don't compare to the glory that's coming. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. There's a fine line between having eager expectation and longing for a home and patiently waiting while we look toward growing and building the kingdom right here where we live. Father, help us in this hour to be, to be content with knowing and by faith accepting that we have so much to look forward to. And it's not to diminish the pain that we're experiencing, but it is to put it in perspective. Because this isn't all there is. There's so much more, and you are actively involved in the pain that we're experiencing right now. And you are, by degrees, making it all new again. You are working for us this great salvation. So, keep us centered on your word. Don't let our minds stray into worry and anxiety concerning our present circumstance or the future. Keep our hearts set on your word. And thank you for the assurance 
of glory to come. In your name I pray. Amen.